So if you have a Bible with you, um, can we turn back please to that passage we read from Genesis 16. And this portion of scripture, it's situated between two covenant promises that the Lord made to Abraham. There's the covenant promise we looked at last time, found in chapter 15, uh, where the Lord promised Abraham an heir. This was found in the fourth and the fifth verse. Um, The Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And the Lord said to him, So shall your descendants be. That was one covenant promise the Lord had made to Abraham. And it's one I'd like you to just keep in the back of your minds as we look at chapter 16. Um, There was also another promise made. um, And that's um, found in verse 7, the promise of the land. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. The Lord God in chapter 15, as we saw last time I spoke, was graciously reassuring Abraham. He was binding himself to him by a visible covenant and reminding Abraham that a covenant made by God can never fail. As the Lord then later passed through the um, pieces of animals ripped in half in verse 9, Abraham understood God had placed his whole deity, his whole being on the line. He was vowing to do everything for Abraham. And if he failed, he was saying, I would rather be torn apart. I would rather have my name dishonored, my relationship and everything cut apart if I break these promises. And Abraham took great comfort from this. Chapter 17, then, is also a covenant promise made by God. It's a more detailed and explicit look at the promise of an heir and the promise of a land. But between these two chapters, we have chapter 16. And there's a big shift in focus. Chapter 16 shifts in focus from Abraham to his wife, Sarai. And up until this point, Sarai has drifted in and out of the narrative. She says the odd passing comment here and the odd passing comment there about her. So we're going to look at this chapter... If you wanted a sermon title, I think it would be the sequel of Sarai's sin of selfishness or the consequences of Sarai's sin of selfishness. First of all then, I think it's helpful to set the scene for this chapter by drawing together all the knowledge we have of Sarai from preceding chapters. In chapter 11, we learn that she was married to Abram. And in verse 30 of that chapter, it tells us that Sarai was barren. She had no child. When the Lord then appeared in a vision to Abram for the first time, commanding him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and all his family, Sarai, along with her nephew Lot, accompanied Abram on this journey of faith. Later on, we discover in chapter 12 that she was Abraham's half-sister and that she was very beautiful, so much so that when they entered into Egypt, the Pharaoh took her to uh, make her his wife before the Lord intervened and led her and Abraham back out of Egypt 
into the land he had promised them. And that is the last mention we have of Sarai in the text until we reach chapter 16, where once again in verse 1, the writer of this book reminds us that she had no children. The second part of verse 1 then introduces us to her Egyptian maidservant who was called Hagar, and we have even less background information about her. Perhaps we can speculate that Hagar had been a gift to Sarai from the Pharaoh while she lived in his household. Um, In chapter 12, verse 16, it says that the Pharaoh had treated Abraham well for Sarah's sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants. The Pharaoh had gifted these things to Abraham and Sarai. Um, And for that reason, we may think that she was a woman of quite high standing from her own society. These things are only informed guesses about her background. But what we do know for certain is that she was the maidservant of Sarai. And if you studied the original language, you would realise that this word maidservant distinguishes her role within the household. Um, If you were to say she was just an ordinary slave or a concubine, the Hebrew word for that would have been different to the word maidservant. She was Sarah's chief um, servant and we know for a fact that Sarai was her mistress we go on to see in this chapter that Sarai was a lady who had great authority over her own household and I have to thank Jack here because he provided me with some really interested reading but to give some historical understanding of what this means In the ancient Near East times, it was custom that when a man married, when a woman rather married a man, that her father would provide her a dowry or an inheritance as she left his household. This newly wedded wife would then bring that dowry, um, be it property or money or wealth, into the household of her husband. But this dowry always remained her own. Her household was a household within her husband's household. She ruled it separately, and it was different from all the other properties that her husband owned. And so it was, if there was a divorce or the wife died, in those cases, that property, that dowry, always remained separate from the man's estate. There's evidence for this in this chapter. If you see in verse 6, we'll come to it in a bit more detail in the future, but Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. She's yours. Deal with her as you see. And so, all this background is going to help us to understand the context of what happens next as Sarai makes a plan, which is revealed to us in the first three verses. I'll just read them again. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. This was Sarai's plan. This was her way of trying to provide that heir. 
And this is my first point, basically, and I've called it Sarai's shortcut. Sarai's plan was a shortcut. Here she was demanding action. She was trying to make things happen. The lady of the household, one who was used to giving orders, one who was used to planning and had the destiny of all those around us, had made a plan. And as Abram's wife, she was an important figure. She seems to have had a real determination about her character, as we can see here. And I think it's very interesting to observe, isn't it, that this was Sarai's plan, not Abram's. There is no hint of any pressure, is there, in this chapter from Abram uh, being put to bear on her. They both seem to have believed and accepted that God would provide them an heir. But this was ten years beforehand, and they'd left her, and after repeated reassurances from the Lord that they would have many descendants, Sarai remained barren. And so it seems that tired of waiting, Sarai came up with this shortcut. And this plan was socially acceptable and leg legitimized for, legislated rather for in the society they lived in. There's a code, it was the law of the land, and it said this, if a man take a wife and she give this man a maidservant as a wife and she bear him children, then this maid assumes equality with a wife because she has borne him children. This was perfectly acceptable to do in the society they lived in. And we can see this because it happened elsewhere in scriptures. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 to 4, we read about Rachel and Jacob. It says this, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as a wife, and Jacob went in to her. And then later on in that chapter, in verse 9, Rachel's sister Leah did likewise with her maidservant Zilpah. These things were acceptable in the eyes of man. But in the eyes of God, such a compromise of the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman, as has always been the case since Adam and Eve were joined together in the Garden of Eden, was a sin. And Abraham's silent acceptance of this plan, where the actions show him to be weak and compromised, he had a faith that was stumbling and was easily led along. Um, he trusted more in the actions of man and the ingenuity of the plans of his wife to get an heir than he did to rely upon God's power to fulfill his words. And I think it's quite a difficult lesson we can draw from this, but one of the key lessons we learn from this is that temptation can come from those who are nearest and dearest to us. Now, this doesn't mean that we should go around with an atmosphere of distrust and suspicion between those who are close to our hearts, the sort of reds under the bed scare that there was um, in the communist times. Far from it. But we do have to be aware, don't we, that Satan 
can try and use those who are close to us in order to make us fall or to make us stumble in the faith. It's nearly always the case, isn't it, in our experience that we're not deceived or let down by those whom we are wary of, but it's by those who we trust. It's a tragic consequence of sin, and we're all guilty of doing it, and we've also all been victims of such experiences. And we only have to look in the Bible to see how many examples there were of people who were tempted by those who were close to them. We've mentioned Adam and Eve. Eve offered Adam the forbidden fruit. Even think of Abraham and Sarai in chapter 12. Abraham, he coerced Sarah, Sarai rather, into lying as they entered into Egypt. In each of these cases, it was the temptation of those who were closest to them that led to the fall and displeasure of God, of the sin of the couple. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself, he was not immune to this temptation, to suffering this temptation either. Um, in Luke chapter 2, I was reminded of this account um, as I prepared. It, um, Jesus, his parents, had gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover to celebrate, and they were traveling back home when they discovered the Lord Jesus Christ was missing. And the passage tells us that they searched everywhere for him, and finding him nowhere, they returned back to Jerusalem, and there they found him in the midst of the temple, um, having amazed all the people who were there with him by his knowledge. And in verse 48 of Luke chapter 2, we have recorded for us Mary's reaction and her admonition of him. Uh, his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And Jesus replied, and he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? However well-meaning his mother was, she was trying to lead him away from his heavenly father's will. And see how differently he responded from Abraham. He didn't compromise, did he? He didn't compromise his standards of purity and holiness and the mission that God had given him. His calling was higher than the calling of those closest to him. There was a higher authority in his life, his heavenly father. And for the Lord Jesus Christ, that superseded every single earthly authority, friendship, and relationship. And the calling of holiness is something that all believers are called to, to be set aside from the world, to honor God in all things, and to live in reliance upon his ways. Job was another example of a man who understood this, as his wife said to him, told him rather to curse God and die. And Job's reply was this, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, shall we indeed accept from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin from his lips. This is what distinguishes the believer from the person of the world. Our lives are to be different Faith in God requires us to wait and to wait upon his ways. God never requires us to actions that are tawdry, that are smudging his name and his reputation. As we go on to see in the book of Genesis, the promise was going to be of God. It wasn't going to be down to Sarai's plan or Abram's plans. So shortcuts are never required from the Lord. But what causes people to take matters into their own hands and come up with these shortcuts? 
Well, if we look at this passage, some people, I think, too generously speculate that the motivation behind Sarai's plan was some sort of mistaken zeal. She was over-eager to um, carry out what the Lord had promised. But I would suggest if we look at the text more carefully, we can see that her motivation isn't as heavenly-minded as that even. Her motivations seem to be far more earthbound and focused on gratifying herself. And I've called this point Sarai's selfishness. First of all, just look at her words in verse 2. See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Her reasoning doesn't relate to God's covenant. Um, It doesn't even seem to be a plan that she's discussed or come up with Abraham. She's just desperate to obtain a child. Perhaps I shall obtain a child. She doesn't even seem to be particularly bothered whether it's male or female. Um, there's no hint of that in there either. She, would, she just seems to want to have her needs fulfilled regardless of God's timing. Now, perhaps she did in her mind try to justify herself and her actions. Um, after all, we do read in the scriptures that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But this seems to have been Sarai trying to set about a plan for herself. She was old now, and humanly speaking, her womb was sealed. And it seems that Sarai was possibly worrying over who would inherit this dowry, this inheritance of hers, and the possessions of it. She had nothing, nobody rather, to pass her things on to. And we can see what a great struggle this was for her, by the struggle that Abraham had in the previous chapter. Abraham, when he poured out his heart before the Lord, he said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless in the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus, one of my household servants. And for Sarai, it seems to be that this was also a massive issue as well. And this was the cause for her great distress and the motivation for her actions. If you look in Genesis 30, just to um, prove the point, what did Rachel say in this great distress in exactly the same situations? Give me children or else I die. That's how strongly she felt about this. Without an heir, Sarai's lineage was in jeopardy. Her name would die out. And it was just a case of being a massive issue of honour in the ancient society. And so it was with this in her mind, this is what led to her selfish actions. And we see that Hagar, her maidservant, she had absolutely no voice in what happens next. Her role in the story is absolutely dominated by Sarai. Verse 3, then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. It seems, too, that Abram was also dominated by Sarai's demand. And he went along with what she said, and verse 4 tells us of the consequences. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Selfishness, which all comes so naturally to each one of us, it always leaves other people with a price to pay. We see in this story damaged relationships there was hurt 
There was anguish and pain. And these are the most common results of selfishness. It's um, seen throughout the Bible as other people sinned. We think of King David as he went into Bathsheba and then he effectively ordered Uriah, her husband, to be put to death in order to satisfy his own lusts and desires. Selfishness has consequences to others. And it's one of the most common causes of sin that we see in the world today. Each person is doing what they see to be right in their own eyes, whether it's they feel that there's a guidance to it or not. They set themselves up as little gods to do things according to their will. And they're unmoved and unconcerned by who they hurt in order to achieve their own ambitions. A world where people are lovers of themselves leads to great unhappiness and grief to others. Hagar was the collateral in this story. She'd never been asked to dragged into this sorry state of affairs, but she was now pregnant with child. And this child, all of a sudden, rose within the household. This child was now above Eliezer, um, and Sarai's selfishness brought about further misery. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that personal strife and competition entered between the two women. Um, when, Sir, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. We don't know how or what happened, but that's the case. And then Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maiden to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. This was not how Sarai had intended things to be. Just like the consequences of Abraham's sin and the lie he told in chapter 12, things snowballed completely out of their control. We're not given too much insight into this. What, but what we do know is that Sarai, she turned around and she blamed Abraham for it. She said, my wrong be upon you. And doesn't that show how sinful and weak we are as humans? The ease with which we blame others for our own mistakes. Adam, when he was confronted by the Lord in the garden, remember what he said? The woman, she gave it to me. So may God help us to realize what we are truly like in this. And Abraham, once again, seems to be very weak in this story. He refuses to act. Sarai came to him and, say, and said, can you sort it out? And in verse 6, Abraham effectively turns around to Hagar and to Sarai rather and says, Hagar's from your household, nothing to do with me, you sort the problem out. And as a result, it says Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she so she fled from her presence. Hagar, who through no fault of her own, was now pregnant with Abraham's child was driven from the comfort of this household and the safety that would have been in that household. So we've seen Sarai's shortcuts, Sarai's selfishness, and I'm afraid the alliteration has to change. We're going to look at Hagar's helplessness for our final point. Having fled the cruelty of Sarai, the story now changes and we're following Hagar out into the wilderness a journey that would have been with, well, great difficulty and danger at any time, let alone for a pregnant woman. 
And as readers of the story, it's really hard, isn't it, not to sympathise with her, alone, upset, as she struggles back towards her homeland of Egypt in this wilderness. But we read in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in a strip of land that was between Canaan and Egypt. Um, It's obvious, isn't it, from the actions, or should I perhaps say lack of action, of Sarai and of Abraham, they didn't care what happened to her. It doesn't seem like anyone had gone out to look for her, but there was someone who cared for her. The Lord God cared for this weak and vulnerable woman. The angel of the Lord came and found her. And it's a great reminder, isn't it, of what we learn in Psalm 68, verse 5, that the Lord is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. Those who are looked down upon by the world, those who are often exploited, abused, the weak and the vulnerable, are known to God. It was God who sent the angel to reveal himself to Hagar. And never let how weak you feel, or how vulnerable you might be, or how despised you are by mankind, prevent you from coming to the Lord. In 138th Psalm, and the sixth verse, we have this promise. Though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Take heart from this passage, from Hagar's plight. See the attention and care that the Lord had for her. And also for her descendants, we have these great promises. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, in verse 10, so that they shall not be counted for their multitude. What is so truly remarkable about this is that Hagar and her descendants were not to be part of God's chosen people. They were outside of that um, line. And yet, God cared for them. And if he cares for them like this, how much more will he care for his own people, the apple of his eye, those who are his, when they are in distress as well? And then the angel of the Lord confronts Hagar. He gives her two questions. Where are you going from and where are you going to? A question about her past and a question about her future. Hagar answers the first question in the second half of verse 8. She says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And before she had opportunity to answer the second question, the angel of the Lord replied, he said in verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And I think there's a whole new sermon here, so I'm not going to go into any great detail, but isn't that a question for the whole of humanity? Where have you come from and where are you going to? Everyone has a past. Hagar, although a lot of the actions in this were not her fault, she was with sin. Um, She despised her mistress. She had fled from their household. Hagar had sinned. Her life was a mess, looking back at it. But where was she going to? That was the past. Where was she going to? Well, the angel commanded her to follow God's pathways for her. There was a plan for her life. She was convicted of her sin and her rebellion. She was helpless, 
out here in the wilderness. Blessing could only be found in Abraham's household. And she returned there with future promises because that is the only place where these promises could come true. The promises found in verse 10, 11, and 12. And this helps us to see that God's pathways to blessings can sometimes come at great personal costs to ourselves. She had to go back to this household at great difficulty. We sometimes have to submit ourselves to frustrating and hard circumstances, more than we think is fair. We might not be happy with some of the things that are going on in our lives. Maybe at church, for example, there have been those within the household of faith, as Sarai and Abraham were, who have wronged us, they've sinned against us, and we have legitimate causes for grievance. But drifting into the wilderness, away from God's presence and away from his people, is not what the Lord has planned for us. God's presence is with his people, and that is where he requires us to dwell. We may not understand why, but that is where he wants us to be. On the other hand, perhaps we might be recalled, called to remain in a place of work, a place where we're picked upon, where we're bullied, or we might be called to try and maintain family relationships with those who are so harsh towards us, where it's so difficult. But God has his plans and his reasons for our lives. And submitting to God in these circumstances can be really difficult. I'm just going to say, think of Elijah. He'd offered up that sacrifice, then Jezebel sought to kill him. Abraham went into a great spiritual depression and physical depression and fled into the wilderness. The angel of the Lord appeared to him again and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And if you cast your verses over the rest of the chapter, he then commissions him and tells him to go back. This is what God does for his people. He leads us and he brings us to where he wants us to be. And if there's anything we learn from the second part of this chapter, it's that the future is in God's hands, not the hands of mankind. Sarai's plans in the beginning half of the chapter, they could not frustrate God's sovereign will or his plans for Abraham and Sarai. He didn't desert them and he didn't desert Hagar either, did he? He remained faithful to his covenant promise made in chapter 15. Their sins, though, remained with them. The sins of Sarai and Abraham could not be swept under the carpet. In verse 12, it sees the consequences for Israel will be great down the lines. He shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Ishmael was going to be the cause of future suffering and future tension for God's people. But the compromises that Sarai and Abraham have made, their shortcuts and their selfishness, they were forgiven by the Lord. He could continue to work with them. And doesn't that just prove once again why it was only God who could walk between the animals in chapter 15 and not Abraham? And why it's only God who can do anything in our lives? That's why the Lord Jesus Christ suffered on the cross. That is why grace is by faith alone, not by faith and works, because if it was down to us, we would mess up constantly. We would be taking the shortcuts. We would be selfish. But God's ways only involve him and his righteousness. And so, as we reflect upon this passage and see Sarai's and Abraham's lack of trust in God, we have to finish with these questions to ourselves. 
Have you fully trusted in God's ways for your life? Is his righteousness covering you? Or does your life rely upon some shortcut, some easy way, some way that might be all right to man, but is far away from him? Because we see here that God's ways are perfect. He can intervene in any situation and that he is the one who can lead his people. The chapter finishes quite abruptly, doesn't it? Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar had bore Ishmael after the Lord had told him. And then it finishes, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So that's Sarai's fall and Abram's fall between. And God willing, next time we look at this passage together, we see how the Lord several years later appears to Abram and then um, his covenant is brought before him.